Turn with me in your Bibles to Jude chapter 17. Chapter 1, verse 17. Our text is Jude, verses 17 through 23. You'll remember, so far Jude's book has been a campaign against false teachers, and he has not pulled any punches when it comes to talking about the punishment that they deserve as false teachers and the severity of wandering from the truth. Here in verse 17, he turns his attention not to the false teachers, but now to the faithful Christians to whom he's writing. You'll notice his tone, his tune is very different. He gives a three-part charge. So hear God's word from Jude, verses 17 through 23. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. Maybe you picked up in verse 17, Jude uses some very key transition words. He says, but you, and he doesn't call them ungodly scoffers. He calls them beloved. And maybe that reminds you of what Jude said at the beginning of his letter. He writes in verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And in verse 1 and 2, he describes what these beloved receive. They're called, they're beloved in God the Father, and they are kept for Jesus Christ. And those receive mercy and peace and love multiplied. So Jude returns to these beloved ones and he gives them three charges. First, he tells them, remember. Second, he tells them, keep yourselves. And third, he says, have mercy. Remember, keep yourselves and have mercy. This could also be put a little more casually as look out, look in, and reach out. Those are the charges that Jude gives to his hearers. So let's look at his charge to remember, to look out. He charges the believers to remember. The question then is, of course, remember what? And he says, remember the predictions of the apostles. It's important to remember that the apostles are the ones who were the New Testament prophets, the ones to whom God gave his word by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if the apostles are predicting these things, then we know that they are things that come from God. And he's telling his hearers, remember what God has said through his apostles. It appears that the false teachers have crept in unnoticed. And when we hear that there's such a threat to our our gathering, then we feel surprised and we feel hurt and we feel afraid. But none of these things surprises our God. Because if God is sending his apostles to predict it, then God knows. 
that this is going to happen. If this is a prediction from God through his, his mouthpiece, then God already knows that we're going to face trials. He knows that we're going to face false teachers. This does not surprise him. So that should give us another layer of comfort. Now continue listening, because later on we're going to hear specifically how God is caring for his children in the midst of these challenges that they face. But what were these predictions? What did the apostles say? Specifically, Jude tells us, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Now, there's a close relationship between the content of the book of Jude and the content of 2 Peter. It appears that since Peter was an apostle and Peter has a very similar phrase, Jude may be quoting from Peter. Because in 2 Peter verses 3 and 4, Peter uses the exact same word for scoffers, and that's the only two places that that word is used in the entire New Testament. So it would make sense that Jude is probably quoting from the apostle Peter, as we find in 2 Peter 3. But it could also imply warnings found in Paul's speech to the elders and in his letters to Timothy. This is a common warning to watch out, but it is a, seems to be a specific reference, perhaps, to what Peter wrote. And Jude says, in the last time there will be these scoffers. The question is, when is the last time? Is he referring to the end of time or is he referring to another thing? And that phrase, last time, in multiple places in the New Testament is not a reference to the last days of earthly existence, but it's a reference to the era that began when Jesus entered this earth. The moment of his incarnation began the last time. And we see that in 1 Peter 1. We see it in Hebrews 1. We see it in 1 John 2. And it seems to be implied here because this last time that they are facing with with these scoffers coming in is the current moment for Jude and his hearers. So this last time is not necessarily a reference to the end of time. It's a reference to this era that began with Christ's incarnation. And it is an urgent current issue for Jude's hearers. And he says, watch out, because in these last times, there are going to be scoffers. And if the last time began with Jesus, and then the scoffing probably has to do with Jesus. And these scoffers, indeed, if, especially if, if Jude has Second Peter in mind, uh, and if it's a similar context, Jude has a very similar problem in mind, specifically that these false teachers are mocking Jesus' return. They're saying, are you serious? Jesus isn't coming back. And if Jesus isn't coming back, that changes everything for believers. There is no hope. There is no authority. And we can do whatever we want. And in fact, that seems to be another thing that these scoffers are teaching. Do you remember Jude says that they just do whatever their unnatural passions want? They pervert the grace of God and they don't have boundaries. They just live according to whatever they feel like. They live as if Christ is not going to come back. That's what the scoffers are about. And Jude says, watch out. And Jude even clarifies for us, these scoffers are the ones who rely on their own ungodly passions. Now Jude has been talking about this for the whole book. Because earlier he says they pervert God's grace. They're driven by sensuality. That is whatever feels right. Note how similar the sounds to the, the tune of the culture around us. They're driven by sensuality or whatever feels right. 
specifically sexual immorality. They rebel against God's authority. They rely on their dreams rather than an objective foundational source of truth from God himself. That is the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. They don't stand on that anymore. And they drag other people along with them and they're prideful and they're discontent and they play the favoritism games and they deserve gloomy darkness, fire, and eternal punishment. Jude says, watch out because in these last days, these kinds of scoffers with these ungodly passions and that due punishment are going to come. And Jude then, after he's finished quoting from the apostles, he says, these are the ones. That phrase again, these people, it's not a friendly phrase. He's referring to them again, saying, these people are the ones who cause division. And whether they're dividing the doctrine of the church or, the, or they're creating social rifts, or both, they're not pursuing the purity and the peace of the church. They're worldly, Jude says. Verse 19, it says, It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. When you hear the word worldly, you probably have pictures that come into your mind, and they're probably pretty accurate. People who, who do whatever the world tells them to do. Their values are defined by whatever the next thing is. They don't consider heavenly truths. If the world values the next new idea, so do they. If the world chases success of a certain kind, so do they. If a certain pair of shoes is the next thing, that's what they chase. And in case the point hasn't been made yet, Jude speaks with unmistakable clarity. At the end of verse 19, he describes these false teachers as people who are devoid of the Spirit. They do not have the Spirit. And the Spirit is the guarantee of every believer's inheritance, and He dwells in every Christian. These, then, are not Christians. And Jude has made that clear now. But he's also implying, don't be shocked. Because remember, this was promised that this was going to happen. All of this is to be expected. We should not be surprised when we see the ungodly rise up, even among the church, unnoticed, and, try, and we see them try to divide the body of Christ. But what that calls us to do is to be vigilant, to make sure that we are the ones who contend for the faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints, that we do not veer from the truth of Scripture. So for us, our condition is not all, that, not all that dissimilar from those to whom Jude was writing. We too need to look out. Because American Christianity, in all its various forms, has false teaching. And we, as we talked about last week, are not immune from falling prey to these false teachings, even here at Christ Presbyterian Church. So we must be on our guard. Let's not forget the warnings of Jude. We see universalism and humanism and all these religions that reject Christ's, Christ's reign and his return and that he is the only way. We also see it within the church with these false gospels that we detailed last week. And we see it with people who deny Jesus' miracles, this intellectualism that actually simply stands against trusting God's word. People who strip the Bible of any supernatural accounts and people who mock God by the way that they live constantly living in sin and not putting to death the deeds of the flesh. That is scoffing and mocking our God. And so we see it in other people, but we also need to be careful to check our own hearts, 
to see if we see this in our own selves. We are challenged to look at our heart and our actions and to ask whether we might be those who cause divisions. Are we those who live more in line with the ungodly passions of the world rather than by the Spirit? Let that be a daily act of repentance, confession and repentance and renewing our faith in our Savior every day or else we will become like them. And the proper response to these dangers around us and within us is, as Jude implied in his charge, is to rely on the sovereignty of God. God knew these challenges would come to his people. He communicated it through his his apostles and he is not going to leave us alone to face them. He's with his church as we face the challenges. So we shouldn't be shocked when we see a secular society, including our own American society, drift into worldliness. That's the way of the world. The Bible has described this evil from the very opening chapters in Genesis. It's intrinsic to the human heart, and it's the sad reality of those who are perishing around us. We shouldn't be surprised, but it should break our hearts. We should be concerned that there are many who are perishing under false teachings. We don't lie down and give up. Our job, as Jude tells us next, is to keep ourselves in the truth and then have mercy on those who have fallen prey. So we've looked at his first charge, remember. And he's about to tell us the proper response to the reality of these false teachers. And first of all, it's to keep ourselves, that's point two, and then have mercy on those outside. So let's talk about what Jude means when he says, keep yourselves. He says again to the beloved, this is verses 20 and 21. He says, but you beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Rather than being people of division and destruction, Jude says to the beloved, keep yourselves in the love of God. Now you may be wondering, doesn't God keep me? Well, if you go back to the first verse in Jude, indeed, he says that to those who are called beloved in God, the father and kept for Jesus Christ. So yes, you are kept for God, but we also are to keep ourselves in the love of God. God initiates and accomplishes our salvation and he secures us, but we must respond and live in obedience. It sounds very much like Jesus' own command when he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. God is the vine dresser. Jesus is the vine who gives life. He says, remain in me. You can do nothing on your own. Repeatedly, he says, abide in me, abide in me. How? He says in verse 10 of John 15, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Now that does not mean that we become simple, legalistic rule followers. Because we know that we love God if we keep his commands. And because he loved us, we then are able to love. And because he has given us his spirit, we then have the power to say no to sin. When he tells us to keep ourselves in the love of God, we see that this is, again, God's love that is set on his people from before the foundation of the world. And it's on display in the sacrifice of his only son, Jesus Christ. And we see it in the gift of his spirit who is with us on our pilgrimage home. 
that love of God cannot be shaken. And that is where we are to keep ourselves. And as we obey, we see all the beauty and the glory that He has poured out for His people in saving them. Jude is charging. If you believe in Christ, persevere when things are hard. doesn't say if things are hard, when things are hard. To remember the love of God set on you. Remember that God loves you. And He works all things for your good, His child. And it's a charge to live consistent with His law as grateful, obedient children. Because He loves, we love. Because He empowers us, we can obey. So we keep ourselves in Him through the obedience that comes from faith. It does not earn us salvation, but it shows that we do have faith. And how do we keep ourselves in the love of God? Well, there are three dependent clauses here in verses 20 and 21. So there are three things. You'll notice Jude has had a lot of groups of three. He does three a lot. And here's another one. He says, first of all, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Second, pray in the Holy Spirit. And third, wait for the mercy. Build up, pray, and wait. When you hear the term build up, you probably think of a construction project, and that is a fair uh, analogy. Because our church, the church, any church, the body of Christ is the temple that is being built up, built on the foundation of Christ, being built up as the temple where God dwells with his people. And so we build one another up by standing firm together in the doctrine and in the practice of the gospel. It includes speaking not to tear people down, but to encourage them and to build them up. It includes sacrificing convenience and comfort for one another. And it includes looking out for one another when we see sin crouching at their door. And it includes asking for help when we know sin is crouching at our door so that we are people who stand together in the faith that has once for all been given to the saints. Paul, again, facing false teaching in the Galatian church, writes to them and he says, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. We do good to one another, especially of the household of faith. And you'll notice that analogy of household is, continues. A household that is built. And what are we built on but Christ himself? Without Christ, we have no foundation. Without a foundation, we crumble. The true faith, the gospel, is what a church is to be built on. So that is what we are to talk about. That is how we are to encourage one another. We don't encourage one another to feel good about themselves or to be okay with their sins, or to chase their dreams. We encourage one another to stand firm in the gospel, to know what Christ has done for you, to look for his kingdom to come and his will be done, even over and against ours, even when it is uncomfortable. Jude says, you also keep yourself in the love of God by praying in the Holy Spirit. Now that phrase, pray in the Holy Spirit, is a little bit redundant because we can't pray except in the Holy Spirit. All prayer and supplication we see in Ephesians 6 is done in the Holy Spirit. All prayer is done in the Holy Spirit. And we know even prayer itself is Trinitarian because the Holy Spirit intercedes for us, speaks on our behalf when we can't even speak. Jesus Christ is our mediator who takes it to the throne room, to God himself. And so our requests then require all three members of the Trinity. And you notice here in these verses 20 through 21, the Trinity is present. 
Pray in the Holy Spirit, verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God and wait on the mercy of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is implied, the Trinity, excuse me, is implied in all these things, especially in prayer. We do it in the Holy Spirit. And he's not just saying, well, if you pray every now and then, make sure you do it in the Holy Spirit. No, he says, pray. Be people who pray. Prayer can feel useless because at the end, you don't have any product to show for it. But in the end, you know that your heart has been submitted to God again. And so it's really hard to set aside time, set aside a few moments here, a few moments there to really submit ourselves to God in prayer. But praying keeps us in the love of God. Praying keeps us obedient. Martin Luther has been attributed with this quote. He says, To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. How do we as Christians have any communion with our God and any connection and any lifeline with Him if we are not praying, communicating with Him, submitting our hearts to Him? We could do a whole sermon on prayer itself. And I will come back to it shortly here in a moment as it is super important for us in particular here in Christ, at Christ's Prez. But let's look at the third way that we keep ourselves in the love of God and it is to wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. One commentator points out that God's mercy, that, that idea of God's mercy is regularly associated with deliverance on the last day. So if we're waiting for God's mercy, we're waiting for that day on judgment day. You might be terrified looking for that judgment day when God is going to judge every one of your thoughts and actions, whether private or public. You might be terrified. But we as Christians can wait with patience for his mercy. Because on that day, we will stand not on our own. We will stand in Jesus Christ. And on that day, his righteousness will be on our account. And God will say, well done, good and faithful servant." Your sins were paid for on the cross. And this is totally against everything Jude has been saying about the false teachers. They deserve gloom and eternal darkness and fire and punishment. But you, Christians, receive eternal life. It's not in getting everything now and building your empire before you die that you find success. We will find our victory when we wait faithfully. And it's not that we don't have Christ's mercy already, for we are breathing, aren't we? And it's not that we haven't already begun living in eternal life in Christ, for we have the Spirit, right? But we look forward to that judgment day when Christ's ultimate triumph over wickedness shows his great mercy for those who are covered in his righteousness. So we do what Jude says, we wait. We wait for that great mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life rather than eternal punishment. Some of you have maybe heard me talk about this illustration before, but I know some people um, who have been brought up with incredible wealth. Now, immediately some of our hearts turn on, like, oh, turn on to envy. Like, check that first. Listen to the analogy here. People who are brought up with incredible wealth. 
They know that one day they're going to have an inheritance of millions and millions. And it totally changes the way that they think about life and money today. They can move forward with a confidence, not a recklessness, but a confidence. They don't have to stress over whether they will die of starvation along the way, because not only do they have a great inheritance coming on that last day, but they also have parents with the means to help when the need arises. And they can wait patiently for that day. I'll go ahead and tell you, you and I are those rich kids. You and I are those ones who wait for that day, a day coming that redefines everything about how we view ourselves today. We have an inheritance beyond comprehension, way better than a few million dollars. And it gives us confidence to face even this day and this challenge because we are kept in the love of God. And we keep ourselves in the love of God, so we wait patiently for that day when our inheritance is the presence of our Heavenly Father without a veil. We see Him face to face in the glorious presence of the triune God for eternity. All needs met, all tears gone, all joy complete. Our inheritance is so much greater than anything we could dream of. So we can wait patiently for that day, and it can change the way we live. Be steadfast. Even if it takes a little extra diligence or a little painful dedication, your eyes, when they are set on that last day when we receive that prize, that will keep you moving forward. And so we build one another up, we pray in the Holy Spirit, and we wait for that mercy to pardon us on that last day as we are already found in Christ. So for us sitting here in these pews today, let me tell you, you cannot do this on your own. We must do this together. Gathering with the saints on Sunday morning is crucial. The fact that you are here builds up the body of Christ. The fact that you are here builds you up. Every one of us together is growing together. You get to hear the people in the pew beside you confessing their sins alongside you. And you get to receive forgiveness along with every single one of us in here. And we get to sit under God's teaching together. We must do this together. This is how Christ has designed for us to grow in him. But I urge you, one time on Sunday morning is not enough. Many churches now, sure, this is a human measure, but many churches will define an involved church member as somebody who comes not just on Sunday mornings, but also some other time regularly because we need fellowship with one another. And I'm not telling you that that is biblical, um, that is undeniable biblical wisdom. I am telling you, I'm, I'm charging us together. Let us be as involved as we can in building one another up and in growing together. And there is a very particular command that we cannot get around if we're trying to get around God's commands. We can't get around this one and it is to pray in the Holy Spirit. We must be obedient to pray in the Holy Spirit. We need to do this individually and we need to do this together. Our Wednesday night gathering is crucial for the life of this church. If we do not pray together, if we do not gather together to give up once again our designs and to adopt once again God's designs, then we will drift and we will give in to the whims of the world and of our own hearts. I want to charge all of you to pray with the saints. 
as you are able. Again, it feels unproductive. Sometimes it feels like a waste of time because we have nothing to show for it. But without it, our agendas in this church will turn into a waste of time themselves. Maybe you've noticed Jude first tells the people he's writing to to keep yourselves in the love of God before he tells them to reach out. And I think that's important for us to make sure that we ground ourselves because if we're not grounded and then we come face to face with the false teachings of the world, we will not know where we stand or what truth is or where the lines are. So Jude saves his last charge to the beloved for the end here. uh, And it's the charge to have mercy on the doubters. Here he tells you, care about the people who are outside. Care about those who are struggling. Now, various translations render verses 22 and 23 in various ways because the original text is hard to decipher. But we're going to look at it as it's here in the ESV in a three-part charge again. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. And show mercy with fear. First of all, have mercy on those who doubt. Now, you know Jude's tone toward the false teachers is severe, but when he turns to those who are victim to the false teachers, he says, have mercy on them. It's probably speaking of those who have listened to the false teachers and thought, oh, that sounds really interesting. That's a new, exciting idea. Let's go explore it. They're swaying, they're veering. And our natural human tendency, if we don't veer, is to look down on them and say, oh, you're just weak. I had it figured out. I didn't give in because it makes us feel good about ourselves. And it also hides our fear that we too might fall away because we are all susceptible to this. Note that while Jude fires persuasive and wrathful words, his tone is merciful on those who doubt. Now, this does not encourage doubting as a virtue, but the Christians are not to dole out wrath against those who are struggling. Rescue these people is what Jude says. Care for them. After all, we're all recipients of mercy. We all at one time were set against God. The mercy of Jesus will be given to all believers when we face judgment and we already receive his mercy that he poured out on the cross. And so because we receive his mercy, we share his mercy, even with the struggling, those who are struggling with the core truths of the faith, even with people who are following ungodly examples in the way that they live. After all, a merciful response is more likely to illustrate to them and win them over to the true gospel, as Christ did for us. And Jude says to save others by snatching them out of the fire. Now, it seems like Jude is speaking in more and more severe uh, reference to how far these people have fallen. First of all, there are the doubters. Now there are those who are uh, on the verge of the fire. And then the third category is going to be those who have stained the garment But here with those who are on the verge of the fire, he says, let let the fear of judgment drive Christians to be concerned for them. Do you realize that these people who who are falling into these false teachings are about to fall into the fire? This gloomy darkness, this eternal punishment, look out for them because we were all like that at one time. Jude has in mind this picture from the book of Zechariah, which we mentioned last week, but which comes even more clearly into his allusions here. Zechariah 3, verses 1 through 4. I'll just summarize it for you. There's this man, Joshua, standing before the angel of the Lord. 
and Satan was right nearby, ready to accuse Joshua. And the angel of the Lord speaks against Satan's accusations, and he calls Joshua a burning stick snatched from the fire. A burning stick snatched from the fire. But then more, the angel doesn't just say, you're snatched from the fire. He, he goes even farther and says that, that God's blessings are given to you, Joshua, because he takes off his filthy garments and he puts on rich garments. And so are we. All of us are likewise snatched from the fire. And so we can never consider someone too far gone to show them merciful patience as we remind them of the truth of Jesus that snatches sinners from the fire and puts on them robes of rich righteousness. And then Jude moves on to the third category, those who have really gone far. He says, to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, this does not mean terror. This does not mean shaking in your boots when he says show mercy with fear because we in the power of the spirit cannot fall, but we must realize that this is a severe temptation. We too can become subject to sin. Paul similarly says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Even on them, Jude says, have mercy, but do it with fear. We should be repulsed by it. We should have a respect for the power that sin is, we should be aware of it and, and feel the significance of the danger of the sin, especially in light of all the punishment Judas talked about. And our response ought to be when we see this kind of sin, we are repulsed. We should not be intrigued when we see people exploring other types of sin, new ways to commit offenses against God. Jude's analogy here is actually disgusting. Our English tones it down because in his reference to Zechariah, there is this reference to garments. This is not just garments that we would wear on the outside. These are the undergarments. This is underwear and they're not just stained by the flesh. This is human excrement on dirty underwear. This filthiness is entirely repulsed. And we ought to hate these false teachings. We should not say, oh, that sounds interesting. Let's go dabble with it. The damage that they cause is eternal damnation. We see kids, little kids. And of course, I'm going to use analogy of kids more and more these days. Um, we see kids exploring and they start to discover their own bodies. And a common discovery for little kids is that their finger goes up the nose and it comes out with a treasure. And down into the mouth it goes. This is repulsive. It's gross. Partly out of shame, we, we look at that and partly we're out of shame because like, yeah, I know I used to do that too. But largely because it's unhygienic and it's just all around disgusting. And so out of concern for the poor child that we see picking their nose, we have mercy on them and we try to stop them from doing it. If we see people whose garments, whose underwear are stained by human excrement, we should hate it. That's how we need to view false teaching. 
That's how we need to, that's how severe we need to understand these temptations to new ideas to be. The world is discovering all these new ways, treasures that they want to taste and indulge themselves in. To us, we've received the revelation of truth. We have the faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ that leads to life. And so dabbling in such worldly tides should disgust us. Even the so-called intellectual or academic pursuits of the world's thinkers shouldn't intrigue us as it relates to faith and salvation. I'm not saying we have nothing to learn from them, but be careful. When not informed by scripture, humanism leads to naturalistic, materialistic ends because that's all that natural man can see. So anything that is contrary to the faith that was once for all passed down to the saints should be treated as repulsive. But have mercy on those who are stuck in this, those who are enthralled by those deceptive lies. Care for them, but watch out for yourself. In the face of threats and attacks from the evil one, in the face of false teaching, Jude is telling his hearers to persevere, dear Christians. And so I tell you, persevere, brothers and sisters. The truth will stand, the, pr- the truth will prevail. And so let us remember God's sovereignty that underlies all this. And he protects us. Let's keep ourselves in the love of God by building up the body of Christ, by meeting together, by praying in the Holy Spirit, by waiting for that great mercy of God to be revealed on that last day and to care for those who have fallen or are falling prey to the lies of the world. Let's watch ourselves that we might not also fall into that temptation, but stand fast on the faith. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This gospel of Jesus Christ. It alone is our hope. Christ alone is our salvation. Let's pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, you have charged us. As Jude charged his hearers, you have charged us by his words to great and honorable tasks. Would we remember? Would we keep ourselves? And would we have mercy on those who are doubting and perishing? Would we not be so prideful as to think that we've moved beyond the temptation? Would we not be so prideful as to think that we also were not like them, stuck in sin, but you rescued us out of the miry bog? Would we be people who rejoice in that? Would we stand firm in the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, that he paid for our sins, that we find righteousness in him alone, and that gives us hope for eternal life? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.